So how many women's college basketball fans have I got in the house? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how many of you watched yesterday's uh, game between Tennessee and Rutgers? <laughs> the Tennessee Lady Balls were down by 20 points at the half. Now, can you imagine Pat Summit? <laughs> this was the worst halftime deficit in her 35 years of coaching. She's got a young, unseasoned team this year. Four freshmen and one sophomore on the, on the court, but still 20 points down. Well, the Lady Vols came back on the court, and they came back. They came back so that at one, one and a half minutes left in the game, they took their first one-point lead of the entire game. They went on to win by four points. It happens. <laughs> it really happens. Have faith. <laughs> I mean, like Jason in today's reading, they found some hidden reservoir of strength and courage deep within themselves. They trusted it. They believed it. They tapped it. They never gave up trying. They never lost faith that they could win. And they ended up with their faith justified. Sometimes life's like that. Dave Barry, on the other hand, looked up at the scorecard at the beginning of the second half and said, we ain't going to win. I'm beginning to be darn glad this particular game ain't going on forever. So who wants to lay bets on whether or not he's going to win? I wouldn't bet on it either. But I had to ask myself, does that make him a quitter? Or does that make him a realist? Some would say all he needs is an attitude adjustment. Enough faith and everything is going to be fine. But isn't it also possible that sometime around age 40, there's a new truth that starts sneaking in for most of us? just breaking in on the edges of our consciousness? When you're in the first quarter and you're barely behind, everything still seems possible. But there comes a time in life when most of us start to realize that what we'd originally hoped for simply is not going to happen. There's not enough time to change that reality. Sometimes, what we really hoped for, we wouldn't really want to happen anymore. And as I look over the scorecard for the past year, I find myself feeling a lot like Dave Barry. There's just no winning some of the games that we find ourselves in. Things might have worked out better if we'd done some things differently, like keeping our savings in our mattresses. <laughs> but we didn't. We're in the middle of a number of games that we never would have chosen. There's not a person among us who is not affected in some ways by what's happened this year the economic crises, the environmental crises, the wars that we started or supported or stood by and watched 
that continue to ravish communities around the world. Ponzi schemes, embezzlement, fraud, unvarnished greed. None of us would have chosen these. But we've all, in some way or another, in ways small and larger, participated. And we're entering this year with loved ones being deployed to war zones, depleted investments, lost retirements, foreclosed homes, lost jobs, forced vacations, children returning home, parents no longer being able to be supported in retirement homes and being brought back home too, lost health care benefits, the list goes on. A time of crisis. And a time of crisis is a time for a church. It's time for a church to show what it is that it stands for, what it really values, what it holds in its center. It's a time for a community to lift up alternate values, to lift up alternate experiences to those that we're bombarded with in the secular world. A colleague of mine recently said, we are being offered the chance to learn different life skills, one that will make a rich and meaning-laden life possible for future generations. Isn't it time we started doing that anyway? I was watching um, a concert that Holly Near and Carrie Newcomer and Bernice Johnson Reagan collaborated in for a group of religious women three years ago. And she told the story of the cellist who was playing in a central square of Sarajevo, Sarajevo at the height of the war. Do you remember that one? Yeah. There's a cellist in the middle of the square playing. And a Western journalist ran over to him and said, why are you playing your cello out here in the open? Bombs are being dropped all around us. And the cellist looked up at the reporter and said, why are they dropping bombs while I'm playing my cello? <laughs> Sometimes we can't find the right answer simply because we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes we simply can't win just because we're playing the wrong game. As we look back on 2008 and realize we ain't going to win this game, maybe we could look back and ask ourselves a different kind of question. Instead of wondering whether we can win this game, perhaps we could ask ourselves, are we in the right game? Is this really what I'm called to be doing with my life? Because when we take stock of the last year, and isn't it interesting, we're standing here in January, named for the god Janus, who faces both forward and behind, evaluating, standing here, 
and looking forward. As we look back, maybe we will find that the reason we're not winning just might be because we're in the wrong game. Or maybe we're in the right game and playing by the wrong rules. Doesn't really matter. Either way, continuing to do things the way we've been doing them, somebody define as basic insanity if we expect different results. What are the things that you've been doing? What are the things that didn't work out this year and why? You might find that when you look at it, you're discovering that working harder at the job didn't bring joy or security or harmony at home. Maybe you discovered that gently supporting a friend or a lover or a spouse or a child while waiting for them to choose a better path didn't improve the situation. Well, it's not likely going to work this year or next year either. Maybe finding that withdrawal from others to avoid hurt actually left us feeling very lonely rather than safely self-sufficient. Maybe the alcohol or other drugs that once provided comfort and made life easier are starting to interfere with relationships or effectiveness. Maybe efforts to improve relationships with your lover or spouse or child or boss or board really didn't make things a lot better. Doing more of the same thing, reaching into that inner reservoir to play harder by the same rules is not likely going to change anything. The questions to be asked are not only did it work, but was it worthwhile? What are the principles that have been guiding us? What is it that's central to our value system? When Holly and Carrie and Bernice were talking about the act of collaborating, they talked about it as a magical kind of event, a joy-filled kind of experience. Bernice said, Bernice Johnson Reagan, that when collaboration begins, when you start talking together about what it is that you're trying to create, you really start at zero. But then something starts to grow, and you all literally jump off a cliff together. And the energy that's created is unique. It's energy that's never exactly replicated any other time, any other place. And faith, they say, is believing that somehow by doing this, somehow 
by together sharing your values and your joys and searching, that decisions might be made today that could make a difference to people in another 200 or 300 years. The one thing that I know from last year and from my life is that one of my core values, one of my core beliefs, is that we were born for joy. I'm sorry. I know that there's evidence on the contrary. But I really do believe that that's what we're here for. Happiness. Enjoyment. And that's really quite a simple thing for me to define. I know I'm happy when I eat well, sleep well, laugh a lot, especially from the gut so it hurts right here. When I find myself saying, I'm glad. I'm not just glad, I'm lucky. I'm blessed to be here today. When I know that in the center of my soul, I'm happy. And I believe that's what we are here to be. But aren't there days, and right now it seems there are more of them than usual, when it's hard to get up in the morning? When each day looms just as another one that has to be endured? When we wonder why we're doing what we do? What's coming out of it? What's the point? Well, you know when you're unhappy, so do I. I also know that happiness isn't a matter of facts. It's a matter of orientation toward life. The facts really have very little to do, very little bearing on our happiness. I remember Jim. He was super successful, especially in his work in social reform. He was always the first to offer help, always dedicated, always concerned, much beloved, respected. But you know, I never knew him to laugh. He died by suicide, and I did his memorial service. I remember Mary who lived a life of comfort, who was married to a doctor, who was free to be involved in a wide variety of volunteer activities. And she did many good works. She volunteered over 20 hours a week. She gave good advice. She raised three wonderful children. She devoted her life to others, and she was deeply appreciated for it. But although she always smiled, she seldom laughed. And although her funeral was attended by over 300 people who loved her dearly, I was with her when she died. And she died unhappy. All she could see is what she hadn't done yet. And she was bitter. She was bitter that other people weren't as dedicated as she is. How do I reconcile Mary and Jim with Bruce? Bruce is still here. And he's a sweetheart. Everybody loves him. He's the life of the party, and he's a great friend, and all anyone ever has to do is pick up the phone and say, I need help. He's the first there. He serves on a number of volunteer committees, but everyone knows he won't sacrifice his family or friends for them. 
One year, he literally resigned everything simply to be available to his mother and son. His mother was dying, his son was having problems in school. And the next year, he was back on the inner city advisory board, working hard, telling jokes, making us all laugh so hard ourselves, not life, that we cried. And we got more done in six months than we had in the previous 12 without him. You know, when Bruce does die, his obituary is going to be pretty short. He'll never earn the kind of money that endows good causes. His friends and family will always be his first priority, so he's never going to make a big name for himself, professionally or even in voluntary organizations. But my goodness, he makes me happy to be alive. Everyone who is his friend is blessed, proud to be a human being in company like his. He's proved to me that life's not only worth living. He's proved to me that life is actually fun. Not only can be, but should be. Elizabeth Dodson Gray tells a story that I love. She says it was actually a recurring dream, but here's the story. A person dies and approaches the pearly gates to plead her case for entrance to heaven. And she tells of all the sacrifices she's made. To her family, to her husband, to her children, she talks about the good causes she's championed, often in the face of severe criticism. She speaks of the misunderstandings and the ostracisms of those who couldn't understand or didn't care about the moral causes that she championed, and she explained how she loved them despite their lack of vision and despite the personal hurt that they had inflicted. And she tells of the financial hardships she's endured and the good causes she supported even when times were hard, and then she rests her case and waits for the decision. Would she or would she not be allowed through the pearly gates into the promised land? Would she be seen worthy in the balance? Only one question was asked of her. And it boomed through all of creation. But did you enjoy it? (laughs) Pardon me, she asked. (laughs) Did you enjoy it, the booming voice came. I mean the colors, the sounds, the smells, the feelings. I could have created everything in gray. (laughs) Chlorophyll doesn't have to be green. Flowers don't have to be fragrant. Procreation doesn't have to be pleasurable. (laughs) Did you notice? Did you enjoy it? What a question. How many of us would simply respond, but I didn't think I was supposed to? (laughs) No one told me it was for enjoyment. I thought... Perhaps that it was sinful to be happy? I was taught that happiness was only allowed in the next world. The Talmud has a wonderful saying. In the world to come, each of us will be called to account for all of the allowable good things given by God and put on earth, which we refused to enjoy.
or whether or not we will eventually be called to account as we move into the coming year. The fact is that it's much easier not only to face the world, but to love it. To love it enough to want to help it when we can find ways to enjoy it and one another. It's easier to work on relationships with people whose company we enjoy, to spend time in a home with a family with whom we can enjoy ourselves. Misery may love company, but healthy company doesn't love misery. Social sciences and personal experience confirm productivity is directly tied to our happiness. Pragmatically, it makes good sense. Theologically, it fits. For I have a lot of difficulty imagining what the point is of doing good if the world is unredeemable. If the world is not a place that was meant to be enjoyed by all. So how do we do that in a less than perfect world? Maybe we ask different questions than we've been asking. Maybe we play by different rules than we're used to. When Jesus said, the poor shall always be with you, I don't think he was saying, so don't worry about them. I think he was saying, don't expect the world to change overnight. Keep working. Keep loving. But don't forget to mark your progress and celebrate the journey. Carter Haywood, Episcopal priest, in her essay, Our Passion for for Justice, wrote of what she calls the celebration journey. She says the celebration journey is an endless and irrepressible way of living. And brothers and sisters, it is ours. We are in for a long haul. History instructs us that as soon as small gains are made, reaction sets in. Those of us who expect fast, dramatic progress in our liberation efforts must expect also to spend our lives in serious disappointment. We cannot wait to celebrate our arrival. Until we've made enough money, won enough political victories, found enough security, we cannot wait to sing our songs and dance our dances and make our love and write our poems until we've made it to the promised land in which there will be no more tears, no more cruelty, no more bigotry, no more hatred. The time is now. In the journeying, now to play, now to rest, now to begin to realize that now is the time to see deeply the value of small changes and of whatever moments of love and truth-telling and delight that we do share. We have it within us to do what we have to do, and we have it within us to find the pleasure in the doing. We have it within us to see ourselves and our lives in a larger perspective, We can remember that wonderful quote from Chesterton who said, angels can fly 
because they take themselves lightly. At least one Roman Catholic convent accepts candidates for the holy orders only if they eat well, sleep well, and laugh easily. It makes sense. People who love creation, who love humanity, are people who can call on the inner reservoir, but first discern what the game is they want and need to be playing. They're people who have learned to respond not only to the command to love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with your God, but also to the command to sing praises, to enjoy life, to enjoy the time that we've been gifted with on this earth.